right. Good morning, church. Uh, I'm Corey. If I don't know you, I, I hope to at some point. Uh, I was also not at the last board meeting where they decided who was going to do um, <laughs> the budget update, and uh, you do the math. Um, all right, speaking of numbers, uh, this is going to be four, five, six, ten, twenty minutes. Uh, I'm told that that's like, you know, four or five or 10 or 20 minutes longer than most of you want to listen to this, but uh, is that gonna be up there? Okay, great. Um, but I'm gonna do my best, so for the too long don't read version, we're doing great. I think the church is in a great place financially. They're handling the budget really well. Uh, we've got a, gr a lot of great things in store for 2023 as well. So I'm in a good place with it. The board's in a good place with it. I hope you are as well. Um, okay, you can access this report that we're about to look through on the, is it called the church app? Church the Church Center app. I did try it just at the beginning of service. It works just fine. And so it's the exact same deck that I'm gonna go through with you right now. So we can go ahead to the next one. These are our giving trends for the past few years. Uh, honestly, this is a little bit of a surprise to me. Most churches are not seeing an upward trend throughout COVID. Uh, we're about double the US church average, at least in terms of our increase for this year. We're low. Three and a half percent. Most churches honestly saw a decrease in giving in 2022. Really happy about that. Uh, let's see. The stock market went down 20%. Usually giving goes down with the stock market. We're doing well there too. Uh, we can go to the next one for giving units. This is very uh, in line with most U.S. churches. Uh, so they've seen a dip. Most are seeing uh, people come back in person and increase in giving units as well. Uh, this is what, what is different for us versus most churches is that continued increased giving. And so thank you to you guys for doing that. I know it's, it's, a, it's a pinch for everybody right now. And uh, Ecclesia is an outlier in a good way. And so I'm really excited to see this. We'll keep doing more analysis on giving units. And so, and speaking of, if we could go to the next one, uh, this is a breakdown of the uh, giving units, giving amounts. We don't really do much analysis on this, so don't get creeped out. We're not really looking uh, at names and attaching, you know, how nice we are to certain people. Uh, that is not a strategy. <laughs> I will say all of these are very important segments. I'm pleased that over 50% of our giving units are on the lower end. That indicates a lot of good things. One is it's just kind of a normal part of giving. Two is that we have a younger congregation. That's a good Good thing. Most congregations are not seeing that, especially ones that are seeing increased giving are not seeing that. So that's really good news for us. And then three, the thing that I tend to look for when I see breakdowns of giving units, is there a concentration of risk in any one segment, specifically on the bigger side? Uh, and we don't have that. And that is fantastic. In other words, if one of the bigger units moves away, we're still just fine. So it's not a big deal. We want to increase all of those as best we can, but we're in a good place there as well. I'm happy with this one. All right, we go to the next one. Um, this one is really good. So we did most of our analysis on the first few slides on the 268 right there. You'll see that orange slice of the pie is a special gift. And this is one of CJ's in-laws, is a philanthropist, has, been, uh, has committed to giving us $50,000 a year for the next five years. This is a big deal. Uh, this is a really big deal. We're not spending all of it. We're gonna be really smart uh, with this. The board's kind of you know, trying to figure out what are we gonna do with this strategically? What are we really trying to focus on? I'm more focused on the 268 because that's going to be the consistent giving that we need to project you know, our expenses with. Uh, but the $50,000 a year is a, an enormous godsend, obviously. Really excited about that. So thanks to CJ's uh, relatives for sure. All right. And then the next one, 
If you really just want to play a game right now, you're bored, do the math on this one. It won't work. Um, so <laughs> I just found some formula errors this morning. It's directionally in line. It's very, very close. The main takeaway from this slide is that... Um, <laughs> yet, we are going to be able to do math this year. That's our big goal as a board, uh, is that we're not spending all of the budget. So it's, it, that's a good thing. This is a very lean church budget-wise, and you'll see on, I believe, the next slide how we're a lean church. Uh, I've been on other church boards. We're unique in this. And so to go under budget as a church doesn't happen very often. Um, this is a consistent trend with Ecclesia that I've seen in the short time I've been on the board. Really happy about this one. This is our breakdown in terms of how we spend it. This is according to our bylaws. We have to have three main areas, payroll, operations, and missions. Missions is the one that makes Ecclesia, you know, stand out. Our bylaws say that we have to give a third to missions. If you see, it's 29.3. That is still within the bylaws. The bylaws state that it has to be based on general giving. Our total giving <clears throat> includes that special gift. If you take that out, our general tithing is at 33%. Uh, so we're in good shape there. 78% um, of churches in America have seen an increased need in benevolence, community funding, and missions. So this is something that if you have any needs right now, we do have money set aside for that. Please talk to uh, the board, to CJ and Curtis. We're happy to uh, to help you out if, if you need to. Payroll, we're low uh, on the percentage of our budget. Most churches see about 60% dedicated to payroll. So 51%, and actually this is a little higher this year. Uh, CJ and Curtis, uh, Greg and Mel are doing a wonderful job for a very little amount of money. Uh, so I'm really proud of this number and I hope to get us a little closer to, uh, to the US average at least. And then on the operations, this is what I mean. We're very lean compared to most churches at 20% is really low. Uh, and that's a, just a testament to the volunteers that we have, how dedicated we are to being nimble and as an agile church. We're really good at this. Like I said, we're even under budget in a lot of these. Uh, and so I hope that trend keeps going. But we don't want to be so lean that we're skimping. And so this is something, at least per, for me, I'm taking a pretty hard look at. We can go to the next slide, and this is my last one. Uh, this is, it says budgeted giving up here. So this is our 2023 budget, which was just approved. Uh, so our 2023 budget is, uh, at least for expenses, at $300,000 or $301,000. The giving is slightly under that. Combined with the special gift, we're spending roughly half of it or so. Uh, so this is a good thing. And like I said, we're going to analyze this going forward. What do we do with the 50000 a year? If it stops, are we still able to operate? We are. Our cash reserves, again, are higher you know, percentage-wise than most churches. The trend is really, really good uh, for us. But again, tons of room for improvement. And I'll close out with, uh, I believe it was St. Paul who said, when you're talking about church budgets, um, Jesus saves, and so should we. So that's, that's our goal here as a board. And I will turn it back over to whoever has the next thing. Right. Good morning, church family. Our New Testament reading uh, begins with Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 5 and 13 to 17. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, 
but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Our gospel reading is from John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Teals. Good morning again, everybody. Thank you, Corey, for that riveting financial update. 
Corey, I feel like you have a, um, I feel like you could have a side hustle in like a financial update consultation business, right? Just like, I'll come do your finance, finance updates for your church and uh, make them less brutally boring. Um, uh, quick announcement, went and saw Creed 3 on Friday. It's dope, going again today, just letting you know. Um, all right, with that important announcement out of the way, let me paint a picture for you. It is the summer of 2010. I was 29 years old. Abby had just turned two. And Holly was pregnant with Noah, probably just beginning to show. I still did not have texting on my phone. I did not believe that texting was an advancement in human communication, still don't, so I held out for years beyond everyone else in U.S. society. Unfortunately, it eventually broke me down. We at that point are two years into the Obama pregnancy, or pregnancy, weird, sorry. We were just talking about pregnancy. I don't know what happened there. That's weird. <laughs> Presidency <clears throat> and starting to recover from the 2007-2008 recession. Donald Trump was a TV star on The Apprentice, a very realistic show about business and corporate America. We were still at the height of optimism about the internet and social media. The Arab Spring was less than a year away. Inception, Toy Story 3, and the social network were owning the box office that year, and Justin Bieber's baby was playing on the radio. And a group of about 20 people started a church at Athens Drive High School. And if you were there, you might have been wearing jeggings. In 2010, roughly 20% of the U.S. population owned a cell phone, or a smartphone, excuse me. Today, that number is around 85%. If you owned a smartphone in 2010, you could not have taken a selfie because the front-facing camera was not introduced until the iPhone 4 the following year. In 2010, Netflix had 19 million streaming subscribers less than 10% of the 200 plus million it has now. Redbox was still a thriving innovation in the movie space. In 2010, Amazon Prime had 3 million subscribers. By 2020, it was over 200 million. In 2010, Facebook had just crossed the 500 million subscriber threshold, which is a lot to be sure, but it's a lot less than the 2.2 billion it has now, at least. Instagram was launched that year, but few people knew about it. It would not reach 100 million subscribers until 2013, a year after it was bought by Facebook. Now it has over 1 billion subscribers. TikTok was still six years from launch and eight years from one billion users. In 2010, Facebook was still a privately owned company. It did not go public until 2012, which dramatically changed the company's financial structure and incentives. 
In 2010, Facebook was used almost exclusively on laptops and desktop computers because again, the smartphone adoption rate was still only at about 20%, and it would not cross the 60% threshold in the U.S. market until around 2015. Notably, this threshold in 2015 dramatically increased social media usage and contributed to the proliferation of new services like TikTok, etc. Incidentally, or perhaps not very incidentally, sociologists typically mark 2012 and 2015 as major watershed moments in a nationwide mental health crisis, especially among teens, especially among teen girls. And I'm not sure how many of you follow the news, but the CDC released a report this week on the mental health of teenage girls. You should go read it, particularly if you have one. Here are graphs of time spent with friends and the line is 2012. And then here is a graph of depression and anxiety among teenagers over the last 20 years. Moral of the story, the world has changed quite a bit since we started this church. We've witnessed tra transformations in communications, in social life, in how we shop, in political discourse, in how we entertain ourselves. And we haven't even started talking about elections, police shootings, mass shootings, or global pandemics. The it's eerily quiet in here right now. The world has changed immensely since we had that first worship service back in the chorus room in 2010, creating new social realities new needs and new challenges, most of which as a society, we're just beginning to wrap our heads around and ask the right questions. I have also personally changed a lot since we started this church. As mentioned, I was 29 then. Now I am turning 42 in just over a month. I am now the parent of a high schooler and a middle schooler. Holly and I are coming up on our 20th wedding anniversary in June. In the last 12 years, I have experienced beauty and burnout, exhilaration and exhaustion. And for the most part, I feel like I've come out the other side wiser and stronger with more love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, at least a little. And those things, most of them, don't come naturally to me. So things generally seem to be trending in the right direction, I guess. In light of all of these societal and personal changes, my view of ministry has been changing as well. In 2010, my ministry was probably about 90% head and 10% heart. Over the years, those percentages have shifted dramatically. I'm not exactly sure where they are, but I don't know, maybe 60-40 in the opposite direction. When we started this church, I think I thought that my job was to teach you a lot of really good stuff. 
just jam a lot of really great ideas and historical context and Greek words and etymologies and all sorts of random weird stuff like that. Just jam it into your heads and the rest of your life would just come along for the ride. Now, I think my job is much more to create opportunities for you to deepen your faith to have conversations with one another and engage in practices that will help point your hearts first and foremost in the direction of God, knowing that the rider of your mind will follow that elephant. I'd say there are three words that are top of mind for me right now as I think about ministry and our life together as a church. Wisdom, incarnation, and liturgies. So first, wisdom. We've talked about this model many times before. I got it from Richard Rohr, but he got it from several other sociologists and theologians. The Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, as the Jews call it, is divided into three sections. The Torah, roughly translated as law, Navi'im, translated as prophets, and Ketuvim, translated as the writings, which really is wisdom, the wisdom writings. And Richard Rohr and many other theologians say that this three-part structure maps, in many ways, the journey to spiritual maturity. We all begin out of necessity with law, with rules, boundaries, external forms of authority. But if we're healthy and growing, we eventually move into the stage of prophecy, of critical thinking, perhaps even some deconstruction, of asking hard questions about the rules and the systems that perhaps we came up in. And this is normal, this is healthy, but this is also meant to be a temporary phase. As Rohr says, endless critique is not life-giving. It does not build the kingdom. It does not create faith and hope and love in the world. If one stays there too long in prophecy, it becomes ultimately self-righteous, self-indulgent, and self-serving. We are called to move through prophecy into wisdom. Wisdom combines the best of those two previous stages while wholly transcending them at the same time. It understands the need for boundaries and systems and rules, but it also is aware of their inherent shortcomings. It's intelligent and critical in many ways, like the prophecy phase, but it also acknowledges the limits of intellect. Sometimes people call this phase the second naivete. Wisdom is a place of paradox, holding together truth and humility, compassion and conviction, certainty and mystery. Our task as followers of Jesus is to become wisdom people in the, the frenzy and disorientation of all of those changes I mentioned before, the world needs more than ever wisdom people. People rooted in a deeper truth and a deeper reality. People living, to use language I've used in the last six months, in kairos time instead of chronos time. Second word is incarnation. 
I talked about this in a sermon just a few weeks ago, I think, so I won't belabor the point, but we are living in an increasingly excarnational world. We are increasingly pulled out of our bodies, out of communities, out of the day-to-day interactions with people and with the created world that are a fundamental part of our humanity. And quite frankly, it's destroying us from the inside out. And I could cite all sorts of studies and statistics like the graphs I put up before, but instead, I'm going to do something much more offensive. I'm simply going to ask you a question. How are you doing? Like legit, how are you doing? Is excarnationalism bringing you joy and hope and life, or do you know something is wrong, even if you're not totally sure what to do about it? What the world needs now more than ever is incarnational people and, more importantly, incarnational communities, which is really the only way that people can be incarnational anyway. People living real life together and rehearsing against the grain of culture and technological advancement the story of resurrection and new creation. Going back to the ways that I've personally grown, this is one of the biggest things I think I've learned. Church is not simply a medium for content transfer. It's not a TED Talk. It's not a brand. It's not a podcast. It's not a YouTube video. Church is a sacred, incarnational community where people do deeply spiritual stuff like eat cereal together. (laughs) Church is less about content than it is about community. And then finally, liturgies. And I've been talking again about this a lot lately and probably going to keep talking about it. Sorry, not sorry. Everything is liturgical. And we are shaped as human beings, as liturgical beings, far more by our habits and our rituals than our ideas and our thoughts. And I want to come at this from basically two angles briefly today. First, we need to recognize that all those things that I just mentioned a few minutes ago, all of them, phones, front-facing cameras, social media apps, Amazon, TV, Netflix, all of it, all liturgies. Spiritually formational, value-laden liturgies of self, of freedom and independence, of immediacy, of performance, of consumption. And second, if all of those things are liturgies, we need counter-liturgies. Liturgies of faith, hope, and love. In fact, this is the only way that faith, hope, and love will actually get into your hearts. You cannot, you will not think yourself into it. If your ideas and your liturgies are in competition with one another, the liturgies will always win. So here, at almost 42, 12 plus years into pastoring this church, here are the questions that I'm asking every day. How do we become people of wisdom, intelligent and humble, Confident and compassionate. 
And because this whole story that we're here to talk about and celebrate is the story of the wisdom, the logos becoming flesh, how do we become less intellectual and more incarnational? Less about content in the abstract and more about communion with both God and one another. And what are the liturgies that will help us get there? These are the questions that I'm asking these days, that I'm trying to figure out how to use to lead you right now. And if you like these questions, we are going to have a lot of fun over the next 10 to 20 years. If not, it's going to get awkward, just being honest. Now, with the rest of my time, I just want to read a portion of our gospel text and make a few just simple, quick observations, right? This is the more traditional sermon part, but we're going we're gonna to move through it. So John 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where, it's come, where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, this is obviously a, a famous story with a particularly famous line or two in it. But here are my two quick observations. First, Nicodemus came at night. Jesus taught in public all day. And Nicodemus clearly knew how to find him. But he comes under the cover of night where he won't be seen by others. Which means it was dangerous for him to come to Jesus. Whether that danger was from his own party, the Pharisees, the social and religious power brokers of the day, or perhaps from Herod or the Sadducees or the Romans, the political power brokers of his day, we don't know precisely, but whatever it was, it was dangerous for him to visit Jesus, which I think reminds us that it's always dangerous to come to Jesus. Jesus always offers something that transcends and subverts cultural paradigms. So there is always a cost to coming to him. So we often, like Nicodemus, in our various ways, try to come at night, trying to visit him without people really seeing or observing. We try to hear his teaching without it reordering our lives in any comprehensive way that others might notice. Second observation, being born again is an adventure. 
I'm going to say something that's really, really obvious here, but it's kind of profound given some of the church's past mistakes, I think, in relationship to this phrase. Being born typically leads to a life. In N.T. Wright's commentary on this text, he likens the modern church's approach to this statement, you must be born again, to taking your birth certificate, framing it, and putting it on the wall of your home and making it the centerpiece of your decor. No one does that, by the way, because we all understand that the point of being born isn't the act of being born itself, it's the life that being born gives birth to. If you lose your birth certificate, no one goes, well, how do you know you're alive? I'm alive because I'm standing here, living. Being born leads to life. It's the beginning of the adventure. Amen? The church has often talked about being born again as an event, as a prayer, a ritual, a singular moment. And ironically, in so doing, it's actually made this phrase born again feel flat and rigid and restrictive, which is the opposite, I think, of what Jesus is getting at. We've almost acted like being born again is a fixed, static existence. But look at the language that Jesus uses in this passage with respect to being born again. He says, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And he's talking about being born again. In Hebrew and in Greek, the word for spirit and breath and wind are all the same thing. Ruah in Hebrew, pneuma. In Greek. So this passage is a bit more artful and poetic in the original language, but the main point is the wind, the spirit, the breath, it moves. It's dynamic. It's unpredictable. It can't be captured or contained. It can't be put in a box. It does not abide by lines of demarcation that we like to create. And this is how Jesus talks about being born again, right next to when he said, you must be born again. You'd think we'd connect the dots. In other words, being born again is about breaking out of static boxes, out of old patterns, old assumptions, old, safe, predictable programs for new adventures, new movements, new possibilities. For Nicodemus, these static boxes might have been seeing faith through a primarily ethnocentric lens. The Spirit was moving beyond just ethnic Israel to the whole world. And Jesus wanted him to see and embrace that, perhaps. Or it might have been the box of Pharisaic tradition. Jesus often criticized the Pharisees for putting their own, often elaborate, traditions over the scriptures themselves. And in the process, missing the forest for the trees. Perhaps Jesus was calling Nicodemus to follow the Spirit beyond the rigidity 
and the certainty of those man-made, emphasis man-made, traditions to something deeper, wider, and more dynamic. Or it could have just been simply the box of social standing. Nicodemus was a respected teacher, part of the Sanhedrin, the body of 70 elders charged with leading the Jewish people. He had a measure of power and security. He was held in high esteem in his culture. Perhaps it was some combination of all of these things. But whatever the particular psychology of the moment was, Jesus is definitely extending an invitation here to Nicodemus. Being born again is not a box to check or an event to celebrate over and over again. It is an invitation to a whole new life, a new, unpredictable, spirit-led adventure. But in order to accept this invitation, you've got to let go of some of the old stuff, old securities, old certainties, old forms of approval, old habits and routines. Perhaps we might even say some old liturgies. At the end of the day, I think what Jesus is really saying to Nicodemus in this passage is, why are you here at night, bro? That's my translation. There's an invitation to something amazing here. You wouldn't have come here if you didn't know that on some level if you didn't see it, but you're afraid of losing the old stuff. So you're trying to hide in the dark. You're trying to have your cake and eat it too. You want to have some Jesus. You want to have some kingdom without it reorienting your whole life. But that's not how adventures work. That's not how new life works. You can't have one foot on the ground and one foot in the water, you've got to jump at some point. So let's just end with a couple quick questions. First, are there any ways that you might be coming to Jesus at night? Are there any ways that you might be obstructing the adventure that Jesus is inviting you to by trying to have your cake and eat it too? Are there any things, any routines, any identities, any securities, any certainties, any approvals, any liturgies that you need to let go of so you can be born again, again, into new life? We have been called to an adventure as wild and unpredictable as the wind blowing. But we've got to drag the thing into the daylight to go on it. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, thank you for this day, this day that's both practical and deeply spiritual. We thank you for this church community, for the way you've sustained us through 12 plus years of some crazy stuff, crazy changes for the ways that I feel like I see new life being born even in our midst, for the ways I see new life being born in me. 
continue to birth that in all of us. But help us have the courage to come into the daylight so that we can really go on the adventure. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.